Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Born and raised in Elizabeth, New Jersey, Thomas Savino is a composer, poet, and painter with roots in the avant-garde New York City music and art worlds of the 1970s. While others were standing in line outside Studio 54, Avino was haunting the tiny clubs and lofts where Eugene Chadbourne, Arto Lindsay, Christian Marclay, and others were playing high-energy improvisational music, an idiom that has since been absorbed into strains of mainstream classical, rock, and jazz. Avino studied saxophone with the legendary John Zorn and composition with Philip Johnston of the Microscopic Septet. In 1999, he released a beautifully crafted CD, Heart of Hearts, which is now available on Bandcamp. More recently, he's been creating richly evocative story paintings on his Instagram account, A Cool Breeze on the Chain Gang. All right, Tom. It's great to see you, and uh, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. I appreciate your taking the time to speak to me. I appreciate the opportunity to do this. I'm thrilled and honored. And uh, after 42 years, we finally get a chance to have a, <laughs> an extended conversation. It's great. You have Thank a long you. conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Yes, my pleasure. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I guess I thought we would start at the beginning. Sure. And just talk a little about your childhood, you know, and... Sure. and uh, just thinking about some of the stories that you remember yeah. you're growing up uh, yeah. in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and what that was like. Yeah, well, okay, it was my house was kind of like growing up in the Raging Bull movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, working class Italian-American family. Uh, father was a truck driver, mother was a secretary very dense, very volatile, loud, dramatic, you know, atmosphere most of the time. Pretty, sorry to say, you know, a pretty abusive father, not, not abusive physically, but psychologically, you know, like really undermining my self-confidence and self-esteem, you know, there's this interesting Vincent Gallo interview on YouTube where he talks about the father and son dynamic in an Italian family. Not every Italian family. I mean, I'm sure there's millions of wonderful father and son relationships, but, but in Gallo's family and certainly in mine, he talks about how the best an Italian son could ever do is be half of what the father was, you know, so, so you will always be this little guy dwarfed by this incredible presence, you know, and will, no matter what you do, you will never achieve what he's achieved, you know, so, and you're reminded of that 
at every turn, you know, <laughs> you know, so, so did you feel like, did you feel like you weren't supposed to achieve? Just yeah, just, just that. Yeah. You were kind of, kind of like just a meaningless little guy. You know what I mean? It, you know, it was really something, but, but the good spin on this that I wanted to mention to you, even with that kind of father, my mother had these four older sisters hmm. when I was growing up, and they were alive for well into my adult life. And they were these strong, maternal, you know, nurturing women figures, you know, women who would make you something to eat at any hour of the day or night. You know, they, they would sew me these elaborate Halloween costumes it was like having four grandmothers, even when my kids were growing up and they were older women living in Florida, we'd send them like the cover of a VCR, like Jafar or something, you know, and in a week, this package would come back with a costume, with a turban, with a ruby and a cape, you know, and so they were these really strong, like I said, nurturing, loving women figures you know, that really gave me a lot of support in spite of the whole father thing. And, and interestingly enough, like, to this day, like, I feel a real kinship with, like, women artists, you know, like, with not, the, the sense of I'm consistently, not in a contrived way, consistently, very intuitively, I always get attracted to the art of, like, women, you know? And uh, like some of the big obvious names, like in music, Joni Mitchell, in painting, Helen Frankenthaler, in poetry, like I had mentioned to you, you know, Ann Carson is like, you know, my big sister, dream girlfriend, you know, when I read the Ann Carson, it was like, you know, where have you been all my life? You know, I mean, it was just so brilliant. But so this kind of I guess what some people would call like a yin energy, you know, this female receptive type of energy, you know, is, and there's a lot of lesser names, you know, to this very day, but um, yet consistently this real kinship with women artists, you know, and I don't know, man, when they get it right, they're tough to be, you know, they really are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, were any of those people in your childhood uh, creative? Were they expressing no, anything creative? No, not at all, no. I mean, the only thing that I could say about those women that were creative is they were amazing, like, seamstresses, you know. Mm. You know, they would make their own, their daughter's own wedding gowns. I mean, you know, crazy stuff like that with little, little sequences, thousands of sequences, you know. But, um, but as far as the fine arts or, you know, they would watch Lawrence Welk or, you know. But, I mean, that, that was about it. Yeah, no big artistic thing, you know. It was funny that my, in my interview with David Harrington, he mentions watching Lawrence Welk. Oh, yeah, yeah. The violinist on that show inspired him. That's right. He said that I couldn't. I didn't remember the violinist, and they would watch the Ed Sullivan show, which would totally depress me because it was Sunday night before school. You know, the next day, and that that Ed Sullivan show gave me such remorse. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Whatever that thing was on, it was terrible. I couldn't stand it. You know. 
<laughs> what didn't you like about it? I think I just associated with having to go to school in the morning and the weekend being over because it was a Sunday night show, you know? Crazy. Man. School was not your thing, huh? No, it was okay, but that was at a very, very young age where, you know, you were kind of just nervous going back on Monday morning. No, it was, school wasn't, you know, overtly bad. No, not, not at all. You know, it was fun in school, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, in the midst of this working class, Italian, yeah. very traditional upbringing, yeah. how did you get exposed to sort of avant-garde yeah. You know, how, how, how would you possibly even know that it existed? Well, I think, you know, this, now this brings up a point that you could probably say more about than me. You know, when I was about 16 years old, I read the John Cage Silence book. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, did you interview him or? Yeah. You did, and so what, he, he was great, right? What was he like? Oh, he was wonderful. You know, he, yeah. the funny thing is that after we did, you know, I followed him around for a couple of days at this arts yes. festival in California. Right. And then after we did the interview, you know, he gave me this feedback session. Wow. He told me, you know, I had been asking him too many questions about Stockhausen. Oh. And, uh, you know, that it's not good to, you know, uh, focus too much on a third party when you're right. in I, I oh, always remembered that, always took that lesson. So yeah. you, read, you read silence and yeah, but let me tell you, I got one good cage story. So, so I saw cage and Merce Cunningham at the Nova convention, you know, um, that was like 79, like the Burroughs celebration, you know, um, I think it was around 79. So this was pretty funny. So they did this, they did the piece. I forget what it was, the name of it, the solo dance piece and the piece ends where Cunningham sticks his arm in a trench coat and then all the lights go out you know it was a great piece so anyway cage is on cunningham is up on the stage and cage is down on the floor with the radios and everything and at one point all the radios go silent except for this one radio and this ncaa basketball game comes on and the announcer is this guy, Al McGuire, who used to be a coach, and now he's a bad, he's got this real tough, you know, New York accent. So for this moment, there was just Al McGuire's voice, that guy shouldn't have missed that layup, what's wrong, and Merce Cunningham. And it was great. It was a trip. These guys, Cage and Cunningham, their whole, you know, bringing together disparate things at the same. They were doing their thing that night so well. It, it was really fantastic. It was really happening, you know, funny. What did you, what did you get out of Cage? You know, you found silence. Yeah. Um, how, how did you find that book? Do you remember? Just the Elizabeth Public Library. I don't know if I stole it and kept it a really long time and eventually had to sneak it back into the library. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, I go into the music department and I guess, you know, there was that, co- I forget what the, the cover said, silence. And do you remember on the back where there are all little pictures of him with the E Ching and stuff, you know, that just caught my eye and I read it. And then, um, so, so in the, if you, you probably remember, there was lecture on something and lecture on nothing. The lecture on something was pretty much about Morton Feldman, 
So I, after that, I, I, you know, the little Feldman that was available when he was alive, not after he died, there was a glut of recordings, but, um, so I really, really got into Feldman, you know, as, you know, anything I could find. And then even more importantly than silence, the next book, remember a year from Monday mm-hmm. in that book, he really named, uh, he really named all the names, you know, I mean, Rauschenberg and Johns and Clark Coolidge and Jackson McLow and, you know, just a who's who list of who was doing, you know, cutting edge stuff. So that kind of put me on the lookout, you know what I mean? Mm. And, uh, and then like we've talked about, there was this drugstore around the corner from my house in Elizabeth that carried the Village Voice and the Soho Weekly News. And I would buy those things. I think they came out on Wednesday or Thursday religiously. And kind of like what you did in the old days with Daedalus, you know, there were these little well-written blurbs, like about what the concert was going to kind of be like, you know what I mean? Really nicely written, you know, really drawing you in. So I would just read them and either get in my car and get on the train, you know, with Jim, our buddy Jim Donegan, who brought us together, you know, um, and we would just see, hun- I mean, Elizabeth is like 17 minutes away from Manhattan, you know, closer than some of the boroughs. So I would just read those papers religiously, and I was reading like Downbeat Magazine, you know, just music fan type of stuff, and we would, whatever, you know, and that's how I found out, I, I think I read a downbeat article about Eugene Chadbourne and then saw that he was playing and eventually he was playing a duet with John Zorn and, you know, we'll get into all that. But uh, yeah, so the sign, the cage books and those two newspapers, really, you know, I remember when Einstein on the beach came out, the village voice did this huge spread. It was on the cover and, you know, interviews with Wilson and Philip Glass. And yeah, that paper was really something back in the day. Did you ever read that woman, Ellen Willis, who wrote for that paper? I don't remember her now. She was really interesting. She had like a unique take on feminism and sexuality. And she was really, really brilliant. I, she, she died a while back, but she, her, her articles were really, really good. Yeah, that's when the Village Voice and the music's critics were good. Originally, they had Tom Johnson and they had Gregory Sandow, Kyle Gann, you know, and, you know, it was it was a good paper for a long time. Yeah. And the so and you said your friend Tim Page wrote for the Soho Weekly News, right? Yeah. That was in some ways in some ways the music blurbs in the Soho Weekly News were even better. They were really good. They could really entice you to go see the show, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, they were really something. And so if you were gonna have to describe, because we're talking about all these names here that yeah, most people would not know. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry for all. Yeah, I apologize to anybody for all the name dropping, but it's a big part of my thing to pay, you know, tribute because these people are really important. But it is a lot of name dropping. I know. I hope it doesn't get tiresome. No, no, it's great. Um, yeah. But I, I guess, is there any way that you could sort of describe the aesthetic that all of this represented? Because it's all, you know. It's all, you know, the music is yeah. not traditional. It's not melodic yeah. necessarily. Um, and the, the painting is 
obviously going against the yeah. grain of traditional painting. So is there any way you could describe? Well, I think, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think, you know, the thing about Zorn and Chadbourne and all those guys is, I mean, the one thing I came away with initially, the initial impression was like the scope of their love of the arts. You know what I mean? It was a deep, deep background. And they were, they were referencing all that stuff to get to the point where they were at. You know what I mean? So it was, it, that really came across how much these, you know, everybody knows about Zorn's enormous record collection and everything, but these guys had a deep, 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 deep love of music. And, um, you know, I mean, Chad Bourne, he was referencing like Derek Bailey and all that English music improvisation company with Jamie Muir and Everett Parker. And, but at the same time, you know, he'd break into like King of the Road or something, you know, Roger Miller, country and Western tunes, you know, and, and Zorn, of course, came from a very classical background. He was writing classical music since he was a little kid. And, and then, like you said, then his thing was really the avant-garde, the European avant-garde, Stockhausen and Zanakis and Coggle and Berio and... Cage and Feldman, the, 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 the giant, giant figures, you know, that was his real area of expertise. So they were. There's yeah. definitely a thread, though, I think, in terms of resisting formality, you know, resisting, mm. you know, writing things down or planning things, you know, like a lot yeah. of it is, you know, sort of inspirational, spontaneous. Yes. Um, so it's kind of resisting um, the Carnegie Hall. Yes. Uh, and ironically, it? then these guys end up 40 years later at Carnegie Hall. Right, right. But they were, I mean, they were, I could tell you stories. I mean, you know, the typical suffering for your art. I mean, these guys had no money. The East, I mean, I could never live in the East Village because I was about six or seven years behind all these guys and the gentrification had started. So like a guy like my friend Dave Soulson from the Micro Scott, he was paying like 275 for his apartment. I tried to move in right next door to him and it was like 900, you know. So it just didn't happen for me. But these guys had really low rent and they, they were starving artists. I mean, you know, they really, really, I could tell you lots of stories, you know, you know these guys, uh, the, the stories go on and on, but they really, really struggled and suffered for their art for many, many years, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but I think you're right, though. I think they're, I think they were, they were rebelling against, you know, there was that big division at the time between uptown and downtown. You know what I mean? The car, like you said, the Carnegie Hall and Avery Fisher, and they were playing in all these little places and they didn't want anything to do with that. So there was this, definitely this rebellious streak, Cer certainly, certainly. You're right about that. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, I mean, ultimately you you wound up taking lessons with Zorn. Yes, yes. Sax saxophonist primarily. Yeah, well, I took saxophone. I I'll tell you about it. Yeah, but go ahead. I'll let you finish. Yeah. Just tell me how that happened. Well, I saw him in Chadbourne, again, through reading the Soho Weekly News, 
I went to see him and Chadbourne, this incredible duet that they played. I mean, just brilliant and funny and unhinged, yet there was like this overriding architecture to the whole thing that, you know, as crazy as it was, you could tell by their knowledge, it was structured like an internal structure that each guy had, just an amazing duet. And uh, so then I went up to him afterwards. I mean, I knew this, these guys were the real deal. I mean, they were really doing what's, you know, the, you could just, the level of commitment and integrity was just right up front, right from the start. So I just went up to him and asked him if I could, you know, take some lessons. And he said, yeah, he was very gracious. You know, the guys, I'll, I'll tell you some stories, funny stories about him. And, you know, he was very gracious and I just, took the train over to his little museum apartment, you know, on East 7th Street, and we just just started in. And, I mean, you know, he would charge me $10. Sometimes he wouldn't even take it. And the lessons would be like three or four hours long. You know, it's like that Eric Dolphy story. I'd give him the $10, and I'd come back next week, and it'd be on the same place on the shelf where I left it. You know, and, the, you know, just talking for hours and hours and hours. And, um, yeah, really, you know, really amazing. I'll, I'll tell you some more anecdotes that I think you'll really like, you know. So, so how, long, um, how long did you actually study with him? Several years. Yeah, I think maybe from like 22 to 25 something like that, something like that, yeah, and it was different, we would, we would play a little saxophone, at the time, you know, I was just this kid from Elizabeth, trying to do anything, I didn't even know what I wanted to do, you know, so I would, we'd, we'd play, you know, from the Charlie Parker Omni book, or we'd play along with Jamie Abersall records, but then we would talk about, you know, the 20th century guys, the contemporary classical guys, I would show him poems, you know, everything, just, you know, trying to get into the whole artist, you know, type of life, you know? Mm. Yeah. So just thinking about your, your lessons with Zorn. Yeah, right? sure. What do you think you really remember or that you really absorbed in terms sure. of, you know, artistic uh, attitudes or? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, and we could talk about, I mean, because this was such a mind-expanding, life-changing experience. I mean, I can't be dramatic enough about the impact that it had on me. You know what I mean? It just, that was it. I learned all about integrity and commitment and no difference between your art and your life. It was all, you know, just all the same thing, you know, but a couple specific points. The one thing that John really, really stressed was that the different mediums that you chose to work in were just modes of expression. Like he would call it like a skin over a much bigger concept. So kind of, and this was really, this led to 40 years later led to the painting. His thing was that if you could find that place in yourself, and access it, there's really no difference between writing a song or making a painting or writing a poem. You know, some people might say, well, I'm better at other things, but yes, but even still, if you really can come to that place where these things come from, you can find the necessary techniques 
to, to move into these other areas. You know, I mean, a lot of people say it, of course, it, it's a, at this point, everybody says it, but at the time he was the first guy I heard say it that, you know, yeah, there's, it's all the same thing, really. It really is, you know. And, um, and I like to think, just my own thing, is I like to think that, you know, in your life itself, you know, you could take areas where maybe you have more ease and more grace and then kind of translate or transfer them into other areas where you might have more anxiety or fears or something. You know what I mean? Um, within reason. I mean, just because you can cook a nice omelet, you're not going to be an opera singer. I mean, you know, but, but, but within reason, you know, you could, you could move these energy. If you find that place in that center place in yourself, you know, you could, you could, you know, move these. So that was a big, that was the big thing from him. And the second thing I really want to say though, is like his generosity of spirit, you know, like coming from the background that I did, you know, he was, because he really made you feel that you were as worthy as anyone else, you know, that you had something to say. He, he gave you great encouragement, great hope. Like, I mean, I would just come in on the train. I didn't even have a typewriter. I would show him these poems in pencil, in a notebook, you know, and he's this international figure. And he would look at these things like they were the most serious thing in the world and just honor them and talk to you about them in detail and really make you feel that you were as important as anyone else, you know? At John, when he gets excited, his voice has like this Felix the Cat thing. He'll be like, hey, you wanna write a piece for two orchestras? You can do it, it's easy, you know? And, and, but always that incredible encouragement and giving you, you know, in, especially coming from my background, you know, giving you incredible hope, you know? And, mm -hmm. and you probably know about this, you know, from all your background in meditation and stuff, but, they, this will be the last thing I say. They say that in spirituality, no matter how many experiences you have, your consciousness or your soul is bigger than all those experiences. So these experiences are like the stars, but your soul is like the sky. Mm -hmm. The sky holds all the stars, no matter how many of them there might be. And I kind of feel that way about Zorn. I mean, you know, we're all out there. We're, you know, we're doing our thing and making these offerings and it's very personal and creative. And, you know, there's room for everyone, you know, as long as you're sincere, come in, the water's fine, you know, but, um, so we're like these stars, you know, but John, John's the sky, man, you know, he makes room for everybody, you know, and he made room for me, and I've never been the same since, you know. <laughs> there you go. And then you also, um, you also studied composition. A little bit with Zorn, but it was a mixed bag, you know, but I also, and then go ahead, I'm sorry I interrupted you, yeah, with Philip Johnson, yeah. Right, right. So yeah. how, much, how much later was that? Oh, that was, I mean, like I said, I studied with John from like 22 to 25. And I think I studied with Philip for a little while in my early forties. Ah, okay. Long time later, much, much later. Yeah. Okay. Later. Yeah. And, and 
what was that like? I mean, what brought it about that you, that many years later, decided you wanted to study composition? Yeah, well, it was kind of my attempt to get back re-inspired into music, you know, because I was kind of waning, you know, for a long time. And, um, and I was always a big fan of the microscopic septet, you know, he was friends with Zorn and my good, my first saxophone teacher, Dave Sulson, who's one of the sweetest and funniest guys on the face of the earth. You know, he was the baritone player from the beginning in the microscopic septet. And I, I had followed Phillips, you know, music with the microscopic septet and his solo projects. And I played the soprano saxophone and he's a great soprano saxophone player. After Steve Lacey, who's just, you know, is the soprano saxophone. I would say it's Philip, you know, he gets a beautiful sound and really plays beautifully, you know. And the thing, before you ask, I'll tell you, the thing that, that was really interesting about Philip, the lessons with Philip, the thing he really, really stressed, he was always, always on this, was freedom through restrictions. So he came from a big background in like, theater. He did some music for Richard Foreman and dance and stuff. And he learned that if you wrote this beautiful musical phrase, but it went on too long and the dancer had stopped dancing or went was too short and the dance, you know, so you'd have to like, you'd have to mold your, your thing or like if a certain scene. So he was like, he would give these exercise, like his thing was that you know, like in life, if you have a day where you could do anything, you probably end up doing nothing, just sitting on your couch, you know what I mean? But the restrictions bring kind of a focus, you know what I mean? So he would give me these lessons, like if you're writing a string quartet or something, the cello can never play when the first violin is playing, you know? And you would be like, oh man, but now I can't use all my great licks for cello and but then you realize but i don't have to ever worry about you know writing something for the violin and the cello at the same time you know so it was very liberating you know that you just narrow it down and you impose these restrictions on yourself and it gives you really sparks your imagination you know that was his big thing and do you remember some of the pieces that you wrote at that time? I mean, is anything still around? Nah, I don't know. You know, I think there was a time when I moved and some of the stuff got lost. They were just little studies, you know, and they were never performed or anything. I would just bring them to him and, you know, he'd play them out on the piano and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, but it was never, you know, really, you know, anything that I, I think maybe one piece. I'm not sure, though. No, it, it was just more for the lessons, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I just want to, you know, get kind of the feel of sure. what this whole scene was like in terms of going to these concerts. You know, you were, you were driving in from, you know, this industrial working class yeah. right. city in New Jersey. Yeah. 15 minutes away is Manhattan. Yeah. And what kinds of places were these shows performed in? What, what, what was the scene like? Oh, the scene was, well, again, because, you know, coming from our background, I mean, you know, like you and me and everybody, uh, prior to being turned on to this scene, you know, we would just listen to rock music, you know, and 
And, you know, and then we all got into the progressive rock, Crimson, Genesis, yes, you know, and, you know, the singers, but but that was rock stars. These guys were rock stars. You know, this this East Village thing, this was just people doing it for the sake of doing it, you know, anywhere they could. I mean, I saw, you know, there was the Studio Henry, which we were talking about, you know, below the pet, below the fish store. And, uh, you know, I've seen concerts in like, karate dojos and you know the microscopic septet would play a lot of incongruous stuff like these guys would play wherever they could you know what i mean wherever they could find you know a space to to do their thing you know but um do you want to hear one more story or is it getting to be too much yeah sure so anyway i saw frank Lowe. just just the idea of this incongruous nature of the venues versus the music. So Frank Lowe is one of the most important post-Coltrane tenor saxophonists in the history of the music. A giant tenor saxophonist. He played with Alice Coltrane, you know, but not a household name. Mm-hmm. So I, this is a funny story. I think it's funny. So I saw Frank once on Halloween at Danceteria, which was this big three floor, I don't know if you remember, three floor, very trendy. One floor was the lounge. The other floor was for all the dancing. Then the third floor was, so anyway, so this band that Frank was in is at Danceteria. Makes no sense that they were there, you know. But so it's Halloween and the place is packed. And this band comes out and it, at the time, like Ornette Coleman's primetime band was very, very big. So there was this whole like dissonant kind of like funk thing going on at the time in the 80s. You know, you probably remember primetime and James Blood Ulmer, like this very dissonant, you know, type of thing. So this band comes out, ridiculous. This band comes out and they're all in costumes. And Frank is dressed as Dracula. And as Dracula, he proceeds to blow the fucking roof off the place. Everything you could do on a tenor saxophone and more, the entire history of the instrument in one evening dressed as Dracula. I mean, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, and the people, there's just all these trendy kids around, and it's just like, what? You know, and, you know, and, but this, on a more serious note, because this is, this has a lot to do with the scene. So, like, Frank, you know, Frank and, like, Billy Bang and Butch Morris and Henry Threadgill, guys who were really moving the music forward, these guys were all intense Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, and they fought some heavy shit. I mean, Butch Morris was a medic. Billy Bang saw incredible levels of combat. He has that really great record that everybody should check out, Vietnam and its aftermath. I think mm-hmm. it's on like Soul Note or something. I'm not sure what it's on. And, uh, and there's a passage in the John Coltrane biography chasing the train where frank lowe says 
John, when I was in Vietnam, John Coltrane's music gave me life, which is very important because death was really close by or at every turn, you know. So these guys, they were brave, heroic guys, you know, on the East Village scene. And, uh, and they made brave, heroic music. You know, they really did. And, uh, you know, they banded together and they took the hill, man. I mean, these guys were fearless musicians, you know. So, yeah, they were great. Hey, Dave, may I just say one more thing about the scene that I think is really important? Sure. Um, not the music, but the poetry, which was really, really important to me. Probably, I, we must have went there. <coughs> there was a place on Spring Street by the West Side Highway called the Ear Inn. And um, a legendary Irish bar, it was like 100 years old. The boats used to pull up to it for drinks. And they punched the, the sign out, the, the bulbs that said bar, so that it looked like ear, you know. And... Um, and the language poets, if anybody's familiar with the language poets, the, the New York chapter of the language poets would read every Saturday at this year in. And you had just this Irish bar with great food and Guinness on tap. And you had these men and women. I mean, these people were really smart. I mean, they were doing in writing, they were kind of like, the children of Gertrude Stein. I mean, they were doing cutting edge, really pushing it, you know. And, um, and you, know, it, you know, they went on to university positions and everything. But, uh, I mean, they were really brilliant, you know, men and women. And every Saturday in this Irish bar, you know, they would do these readings that were just incredible. He, he's kind of like, he came before the language poets, but I saw Clark Coolidge at the ear in and an amazing place, amazing place. One time all the poets got caught in the rain and their socks were drying on the radiators while they were reading, you know. So it was a great, great thing. Man. So in 1999, you put out yeah. a CD. Yeah, a long time ago, yeah. Uh, Heart of Hearts. Right. And there's three pieces on there. Um, I'm wondering how how those evolved from your studies with Jazorn and Johnston and where that kind of falls in terms of your interests and your development. Right. Well, they were before I studied with Philip. I brought that record to Philip and he listened to it and, and made some comments on it. But basically that record, CD, whatever, um, that, and it really was just kind of what would now be called like an EP. It was just three short pieces, you know. But that was kind of my attempt, humble attempt, to like take like the very hushed Morton Feldman-like introspective, you know, like with Feldman's music, you have these reiterations. You know, they're not really repetitions. He distinguishes like... A repetition is more of like an ostinato. These are just kind of these insistent statements, you know, again and again with a little bit of difference between them. So it was my attempt to like kind of take that kind of hushed Feldman thing and combined it with some improvisation 
and some spoken word stuff, just, you know, things that were important to me and still are, you know, and it was a real homespun affair. One of my friends made the cover art, another friend made the little logo from one of his cartoons that was the label and everybody on it was close friends, you know, it was a real grassroots type of thing, yeah. And you recorded it where? We recorded it at this great place, actually. This place, I don't know if it's still there, but this place like called Sorcerer Sound in Manhattan. And like the week before we had been there, I think Philip Glass was in there. It was a really happening place that I just kind of stumbled upon. But the guys there were great. They, you know, they didn't put on any airs that, you know, you were kind of a nobody or anything. You know, Philip Glass, and they treated you, they were just kind of like long-haired hippie guys, you know? And they really knew their stuff, and they did a beautiful job. And it was easy for me because I didn't have to play. I just hung out in the sound room with those guys and talked and laughed. And there was no pressure, you know, <laughs> the other guys all had a play. So it was a great experience for me. You, you know? have to be a composer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, you know, let guys who play much better than me, let them handle it, you know. You know, I'll just drink coffee with the sound guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at some point in your life, you, uh, started to deal with some of the feelings and thoughts that you've been having probably throughout your life. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just in terms of, you know, how difficult life was for you sometimes. Sure, sure. And ultimately, you know, I think you sort of came to a resolution about what was going on. I mean, yeah. can you describe how that sort of evolved? Sure. Sure, I'd be glad to, yeah. Uh, well, ever since a really, really little kid, I mean, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, a really small kid, there was always this sense of, you know, sadness or loneliness, which then was later diagnosed as depression. But the thing even more so than that was this real quality of, like, excessive thinking, you know, and kind of like assigning these kind of bad, like magical powers to yourself, like thinking that you had caused something bad to happen. Or, you know, I remember one time I was a little kid, I didn't cut this man's lawn. And years later, he died of a heart attack, but I thought it all went back to the day I didn't cut his lawn. So, and then years, years later, in my 20s, and this, you know, Throughout the varying ebbs and flows, you know, throughout my childhood and teenage years, and then finally in my 20s, you know, it was diagnosed as OCD, you know, OCD with a depression chaser, you know, so we had, you know, we had both things going. And, uh, and so, and then, so then I really, I, I just thought it was me being weird, you know. I never had given a diagnosis or anything. And this, I, I went to this one guy, this homeopathic guy, and I was, I don't know, oh, yeah, you got LCD, you know, it was just so matter of fact, you know, I never knew, you know. And uh, so then I really began addressing it with, you know, different modalities, you know, Western psychiatry and medicine and you know, alternative stuff. Even now to this day, I'm seeing this really uh, wonderful acupuncturist Chinese herbalist to just still hmm. 
open up, you know, some of these self-restricting, self-sabotaging aspects, you know, of myself, you know, so it's a, it's a lifelong thing, you know, and again, let me just say, not only was it very difficult for me, but there were passages that were very difficult for my family. I mean, my wife at the time, you know, really put her through the mill. And I mean, you know, she was very kind and, and understanding, but yeah, I mean, that OCD can, you know, the line between reality and fiction, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the top, like when it's like the toxic version of imagination, you know what I mean? <laughs> Where it like goes, instead of like making a piece of art, the nightmare just goes in and it's horrible. You know, it's really horrible. Yeah. And I mean, once you had a name yeah. for it. Yeah. And there's a story associated with that name. Yeah. How did that change your view of yourself or what, what you were doing? Well, it made me realize that, you know, and we haven't talked about all the Eastern mysticism and the Gurdjieff stuff and everything. That's maybe for another time. But I mean, you know, we all, I mean, everybody in this day and age, you know, has anxiety and depression. I mean, you know, it's just in this light 20, 2020 or whatever, you know, and we all to some degree undermine ourselves, you know, and, you know, self-sabotage. But for me, it became a really glaring example that like they say, what's that saying? The obstacle is the path, you know, that type of thing, you know, where this was a real situation where I was going to be called upon to do some real internal work, you know, psychologically and spiritually. If I, and I'm not saying I've done it, you know, really done, but uh, you know, if I was going to get past this, you know what I mean? It was, it was a real, uh, what do they call a crucible or something? You know, I mean, it was really a glaring example, which probably a lot of people go through, but this was so upfront and so obviously an obstacle, you know, to, to live self-liberation, you know, that it was going to have to be worked on very seriously, you know? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about um, something you've been doing more recently. Yeah. Which is art. Yeah, painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at the paintings uh, behind you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, There's a few of them. A handful yeah. of uh, the things that you've been uh, producing lately. Yeah, yeah. How did you start to get into art? Well, again, that goes back to the Zorn thing about, you know, moving the transferring or translating the energy into different mediums. But, you know, I had had small amounts of success with the the music and the poetry, but also a lot of frustration, you know, and I was always, you know, for years and years, a big fan of painting, you know, I always loved it. And um, so then one day on April 24th, 2019, I guess that's about 17 months ago, I decided I was going to start, you know, and, um, and it's interesting, the, the painter Eric Fischel, I don't know if you know him, he's one of the living masters. I mean, this guy is such a great painter. It's, mm -hmm. it's just unbelievable. And he's, he started painting around his college years. 
And he said when he started painting, he noticed two things right off the bat. He said he noticed, one, that he could really concentrate, and two, that he felt totally integrated when he was doing it. Hmm. And he said, no matter whether I was any good or not, I knew I would do it for the rest of my life, you know. And and that's kind of what it's been for me. I mean, it's a very holistic experience, you know what I mean? And um, I mean, I, I guess for other people, uh, the other arts never real, were real, were more of a struggle, you know? But this, this is really, I don't know, it's, it's no mystery why they have like art therapy and hospitals and institutions and stuff. Because I mean, I recommend that anybody try it, you know, don't even worry, just make some marks. I mean, you know, you wouldn't believe like, the biofeedback you get from it. You know what I mean? It's really a wonderful thing, you know? And I just kept one painting just led to the next and the next and the next. And it was just such a, a happy activity, you know? So just, I mean, looking at your paintings and having watched them on your Instagram. Yeah. And, um, to me, they feel like little short stories. You know, there's I think something going on in them, and they're very, I mean, even just from the ones behind you, they're so different from each other. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's a great insight and a great compliment. There's stories going on inside them, or it's not even at that level? Well, for me, like we had talked about this, you know, you get some guys like this Eric Fischel or real masters where, I mean, they have so much technique and skill that, they can have a couple sitting at a table and just by their body language, you know, they're on the verge of a divorce or something, you know, I mean, you know, I don't have those kind of skills. So what I try to do is I just try to make this very small heartfelt gesture where I just put things together in a way. And I think that, you know, it has to look good first. You know what I mean? You have to want to look at it for one reason or another. And if it, if it gets you on that visual level, then you're free to make the, any associations that you want and, and, and put a story into it. You know what I mean? So I don't really have a story. I just kind of, I mean, it sounds so silly, but I just look for things that look cool, you know, and and hope that it sparks the viewer's sense of story, that they put the story to it. You know what I mean? Because I'm the last one to know, really, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or I just have my own, you know, because when I see it, then I say, but but anytime I really try to to come with the story, it would you know, like I've had situations where it was a good idea and a bad painting. You know what I mean? So so when I try too much, it becomes too contrived, you know, to make a point. But if I just put things together that look kind of cool, then it, the story kind of takes care of itself in the mind of uh, the, the viewer, you know? And that really is an insight that, that would work across any number of the mediums, right? I think so. Yeah. With music and sound and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just whatever the medium is, you got to get that initial thing has to address to look at it, to hear it. And then, you know, and then you can go from there, you know, but if you have to piece it all together first, the work is usually a failure, 
you know? So, I mean, just looking ahead, how would you like your story to go from here? You know, how, how, how what, what do you hope for creatively or what, what would you say are your goals? Just, no, again, I you know I don't want to get carried away, but I mean yeah, the typical stuff. Maybe have a show here or there, or you know what's happening on the Instagram. And I'm certainly grateful to you for this opportunity. Just meet in other interesting artists. You know, maybe someday meet Ann Carson or something. You know, I don't know. You know, just just that kind of thing. The typical thing you would expect. You know, get a little bit of recognition, maybe meet a couple of your heroes, you know, just that, you know, that type of thing, really. You're nothing that, like, anybody else would want, you know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not above that, certainly. You know? Are there any more questions? Because there's just one thing I just wanted to tell you to finish up on, you know. Actually, but, I was, actually, I was done, so whatever you want. Oh, so I just wanted to say real quick, just as a, a statement for the press, you know, that, uh, you know, that, you um, I'm going to have to line up some press now. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, just like that whole idea I saw when you sent me the questions that you said the, the idea of a cool breeze on a chain gang, you know, the type of the name of the Instagram site. Art, the arts, as, as you know and a lot of people know, can really, you know, give us that sense of purpose or the sense of hope and um, – you know, really enrich our lives and, and be that cool breeze, you know, in the midst of a lot of existential issues or, you know, whatever. And I know like the painter Julian Schnabel, I heard him say once that a work of art should really, at its, it, in its essence, should be a peace offering. You know, it should be a type of peace offering. Mm-hmm. You know, for that little bit of time that you're with, this song or whatever painting peace on earth. You know what I mean? Like a Jimmy Carter moment. Let's just all just, you know, have some peace, you know? And um, I thought that was really beautiful. And, you know, sometimes I'll really, and we'll end on this, you know, sometimes I'll think I'm really nuts because I mean, it's certainly been the case for me, but I think I'm crazy sometimes because I'll be in my apartment all alone relationships crumbling around me and I'll have like a Beach Boys song on and I'll have this big stupid smile on my face. I mean, so what you say it, you know? So that's it. Maybe that's the place to stop. Tom, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. It's And best of luck to you. This is a wonderful uh, project you got going. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, really. Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.